Montez Alexander. Shabbat for three. Bingo! Carter will get it for the win. Got it! He is hard to believe. Here's Jordan. Yes! The magic of 
they make it seem as though the physicality they're talking about. So as a little kid, when you're trying to watch the games and look for physicality, you're just waiting for someone to get clotheslined or someone to get taken out mid-flight. But that's not what the physicality was. It wasn't like they were playing a full-fledged death match and then now it's basketball. No. It's the little things I was talking about. The constant hand-checking. The constant use of a little more contact. Harder screens. More clot paint. You know, clog paint, stuff like that. It's not that they're getting taken out mid-flight. It's little things that make it harder on the offense. So when they watch, when the Gen Z cucks watch the, watch the games, they're just looking for, like, big hits, some, like, people fighting and stuff. That's not the physicality that we're talking about. So the physicality is not a myth. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. We're going to have evidence later as, as we go. They couldn't shoot threes. Very general statement. What would they do against Giannis and LeBron? They'd be unstoppable. Once again, we talked about with Giannis... Why I don't, and Asher talked about this in the playoff preview, why he'd be worse in the past because of the spacing wouldn't favor his game. And that has changed his game completely. And then we have the classic one. The average player wasn't as good. But then I ask, who's the average player? And they have no rebuttal. Because once again, they weren't, and I used to think this too, the role players thing. Remember when I said that in the beginning? Well, then I started watching when I started watching the 80s. I saw a guy named Jim Jones. And I started to think, Horace Grant, my friend Will said, the role of a role player was different. You know, nowadays, the typical role player, a 3 and D guy. That's what everybody wants. Somebody who can space the floor and is a good enough defender. Back in the day, it was a rebound D and toughness guy. You know, the, the, the fifth starter of the 1980 champion Lakers was a guy named Jim Jones. I'd never heard of him. I'd heard of Norm Nixon, Jamal Wilkes, Kareem and Magic. I'd never heard of Jim Jones. But you know what he was? On the surface, you watch him play, he does nothing offensively. He looks like he sucks. But the longer we watched him play, the more we watched multiple games. Once again, stop drawing conclusions from one game you watch when you pick out a random classic game, watching full series, listen to the commentators, listen to the context. Put yourself in a non-revisionist point where you're listening to them as if it's happening right now. And what you realize is Jim Jones is out there for a specific reason. He's not out there to help Kareem score. He's not out there to help Magic score. He's not there to you know cut to the basket so Magic can give him the ball. He's there to rebound, he's there to be tough, and he's there to be physical. It's a different game. Yes, the average role player may not have been as good at scoring the basketball, but that's not what was needed. Look at Dennis Rodman. Do you think that if you put him in a time machine and put him in this era, he'd be better? I don't necessarily think so, because you really it's really hard for a player to get on the court today if you have no offensive, you know, and I'm not saying Rodman didn't have any offensive contributions, because I know he's an underrated offensive player, but... If you can't really space the floor, like a guy like Andre Roberson, he was unplayable. You know, Dennis Rodman now, a rebound and D enforcer, insane rebounder, isn't as valuable as it was back in the day. And that's, once again, everybody caters their style to their era. For example, Jason Tatum, these face-up players today, they have a different game than a guy like a James Worthy. What's James Worthy? How does he get his buckets? He's a post-up incredible finisher, mid-range specialist. Players don't have that type of skill set today, but does that make them better than the than James Worthy? No. That's why everybody needs to be compared to their time. And that's something that the average player... You know, the, another a lot of players don't also... A lot of people, the Gen Z, they don't know the average role player. They don't even know what they were good at because they don't actually watch full games. They just take highlights and reputations and stats. They say, oh, he averaged five points. He must have done nothing. No. That's not how it works at all. Have you ever heard of... And there's a lot of great all-star players that you wouldn't know unless you watched games. So let me name some names. And if you haven't heard these names before, then maybe you should 
actually go look him up. Gus Williams, Jack Sigma, Downtown Freddie Brown. If you don't think shooters used to exist back in the day, guys, go look up Downtown Freddie Brown. John Starks, another person. Perfect game could, could translate today. Defensive player, great shooter. You know, Knicks fans will not like it. I said great shooter because they'll be reminded of Game 7 of the 94 Finals, but whatever. Then we have another set of fans that was like what I was, where they think the 80s was great, but when you bring up the 60s, here are the things that are yet said. That era was weak. There were plumbers. Wilt only averaged that many points because they were far superior athletes to anyone else. There were a bunch of white dudes running around. Nobody watched the NBA. It's illegitimate. You can't compare it. Nobody would do any handles. The skill has evolved. I used to believe all these things. But I started to see my own inconsistencies. You know, nobody would say that the players in 2000 couldn't play today. Because the skill hasn't. Even though the game has changed, they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say that about the 1980 players in the 2000. At least I don't think so. But the 60s and 70s, there's something about it. There's something about the fundamental, not fancy aspect of the game that has people thinking that the players were weak, including me. Until I went... So, remember when I said in the beginning of this episode that I was going to go watch games from 1980 onwards? I started to think, you know, why would I neglect what happened before 1980? Basketball didn't start there. So, if I really want a great opinion, a really... A, a historian, a, a somebody uh, that's really into the history of the game. Why not go back to when the first person that's even mentioned in the GOAT debate started playing? And that's Bill Russell. And he was drafted in 1956. So I started watching every single game, studying every single year from that point forward. And man, it made me start thinking with every game I watched. It's a shame how misinformed I was. It's a shame how misinformed everyone is. Because the 60s are not weak, people. So let's start, let's start rebuttaling all those points that I just said. Right? Where should we start? The plumbers. Oh, we already talked about the skill evolution with the handles, right? So the shooting and the dribbling is the first thing. We already talked about that for, in reference to the other eras. There were plumbers, right? People that worked part-time jobs in the summer because NBA players didn't get salaries the same way they do now. Now, here's the thing. Let's say somebody did work a part-time job. A lot of players, it's not every single player that works out in the offseason, you know, one of the greatest players of all time was notorious for not working in the offseason to the point where one teammate got so mad at him to the point that they didn't play together anymore. And you know exactly what I'm referring to. So just because a player may work a part-time job in the offseason, you're not, you're not giving me any concrete evidence as to why he's worse than a player that will work full-time. Unless you're saying they just don't have the time. Well, you know, Tommy Heinsohn sold insurance in the offseason. Rest in peace, Tommy Heinsohn, by the way. And he's an all-star, Hall of Famer. So what does that tell you? Gen Z response would be that nobody else was that good because they all worked part-time. I've tried super hard to search. I haven't found a player drafted in the 60s that worked a part-time job. Something I realized was the difference between the 50s and the 60s is really big. You see, when you put on a clip from the 50s, it looks like a bunch of white guys running around. It looks like a segregated league. When you put on a game from the mid-60s, it doesn't look the same like that at all. And if you study the 60s, you'll realize 
black superstars started coming in after, you know, Bill Russell was the first black superstar. But then you had Sam Jones, you had Wilt, you had Walt Bellamy, you had a whole generation, Elgin Baylor, of players that came in, black superstars, and the league started getting more diverse. And so when you put on a game in the mid-60s, you'll see that a lot of players... I mean, it, it doesn't look any different, basically. Yes, you may have a little slightly more white players than you do today, but those white players are all like Jerry West, John Havlicek, Bob Cousy, Tommy Heinsohn, uh, Larry Siegfried, uh, John McLaughlin. And then you go further, and you got guys like Rudy Tomjanovich, Dave Cowens, like a bunch of great players. So, and first of all, who, are, who am I to say that just because a group of players is white, they're worse? You know what I mean? Like, I don't have any evidence to, to that either. So, once again, the 50s, it does seem like a lot of white guys. I'm not going to lie. The 60s, by no means, guys. And people really get it twisted. The 60s is the first great era of basketball. And I don't even point it to the white guy thing. I point it to the introduction of the shot clock in the mid-50s that changed the game. And you can't really compare basketball pre-shot clock. And that is why I encourage you guys. The 60s is the first legitimate era of basketball. I have not found a guy that was drafted in the 60s that worked a part-time job. I haven't. Frank Ramsey's another one that worked a part-time job. He was a Hall of Famer solely for the fact that he played with Bill Russell. He was never an all-star, and he was drafted in the 50s. So that plumber stuff, all that, it's very exaggerated. So then let's go to the other team. Let's go to some other uh, talking points. So why do the players never do fancy moves? Like, at least you see Magic, he does fancy moves. Well, I started listening to an interview from Oscar Robertson. Uh, when we watch tape or young guys think about it, we don't think the guys in your era was as athletic. But you, you're 6'5", and your elbow touches well, the rim. You're at the top of the screen. I don't know if you touch the rim, but I, I can jump pretty good. Yeah, I mean, but but I've never seen you dunk. You said you dunked in oh, practice no. one time just to show you could. Well, of course, we're not a stuck a ball in practice when I was in high school. He said he didn't want any showboats on his team. i never forget one time. It was coming down the court. I used, I used to do those things Marcus Haynes did with dribbling. Yes. Fall down, lay down, try <laughs> uh -huh, to get guy. Uh -huh. I went behind my back. He blew the whistle. He said, he listened. He said, if you ever do that again, you'll never play for me. And, I, and I, now I know why. What yeah, it meant. Yeah, he, he, he didn't yeah. want us to be called globetrotters. Right. And I'm sure if I had dribbled the ball behind my back in a basketball game, the press would have said, oh, the Harlem Globetrotters, clowns on the court. Mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. that's all they would have said. I wrote a little. And that goes back to back in the day, the 60s, it was a very fundamental style of basketball. Very fundamental. And the longer the game is gone, the less fundamentals we're teaching and the more new skills, so to speak, we're teaching. Fancy stuff. It's gone away from the fundamentals with each era. So if you love fundamental basketball, you love just, you know, come up the court, quick passes, move without the ball, shot, get back, the 60s is the era for you. You know, when I heard Oscar Robertson say that about, like, how the coach wanted him off the team and stuff, it goes once again to show, you think Oscar Robertson couldn't do a behind-the-back dribble? The further you go in the 60s, you start seeing guys like Clyde Frazier, Archie Clark, um, Dave Bing. All these players, they start hitting those handles. They start hitting behind the backs. They start hitting between the legs. All within the rules, of course. Hand on top of the ball. But it's because the more African-American players came in the league, the more the street ball influence was brought to the game. And slowly that fancy stuff became attractive to the eye. But if you listen to a player, a, a superstar back in that era, Spencer Haywood, in the Lakers, Celtics 30 for 30, he says, I came down the court, I hit a move, and I dunked the ball, and I got booed in my own stadium. And I had people say, ooh, boo, he's a hot dog. Move the ball. It was a stylistic way the game was played. 
the ABA was known for that more flashy, more dunk-oriented. Another thing, why do players not dunk that much? You see Wilt, he's dunking a lot, but he's laying the ball up way more than he could dunk the ball. I didn't real. I see guys like Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, who all can dunk, but they choose to lay the ball up. And I'm like, I, I've always heard Dr. J made the dunk cool, but I never exactly knew what that meant. And then I started watching the 60s, and I started reading articles, and it said the reason why Wilt Chamberlain did the little flip shot he does instead of just dunking the ball most times is because a dunk was known in the past as a non-skillful play. It wasn't some highlight that everybody enjoyed. They thought it was a non-skillful play. Just put the ball in. Laying the ball up, actually letting the ball go in the air requires more skill. So players started doing that. So once I learned these things, it just everything started making sense to me now. Everything. Because they were freak athletes that existed in the 60s. I mean, by the way, so for people that say, right, another counter-argument. Wilt only averaged that much because they were far superior athletes. This goes back to the whole evolution thing I was saying about how there's no proof. Well, the average height of a center may have only been 6'9". Bill Russell was like 6'10". Dave Cowens was like 6'10". Willis Reed was like 6'9". And these guys all guarded Kareem. These guys all guarded Wilt. Now, they all played bigger than their size, clearly, to have succeeded in this era. But, you know, Wilt Chamberlain would be uber-athletic and superior to any era that he played in. You know, Wilt Chamberlain, and I'm going to be posting stuff on my Instagram about him, had a 48-inch vert, 50, some people say, could bench press 500 pounds, was an absolute anomaly of an athlete from the past. Guys, weight rooms have existed. By the way, another thing people say, the players were so skinny in the 60s and the 80s. And I'm going to get to why. You know why Wilt scored 50 points a game? It has nothing to do with because the competition was weak, because that wasn't the case. By the way, so if you want to, let's, let's, let's just cross that out. There was only eight teams. You know, Michael Jordan, and I used to use this all the time to discredit the older eras. Michael Jordan once said it was easy to Bill Russell. Yes, I think he's a great player. And I have the ultimate regard for him. He says to me one time, we are out in the middle of the golf course, he says, they just won a championship, okay? He says, you know, we're going to go up your record. I said, which one? <laughs> I said, well, you know, we won 11, but we won eight straight. I don't think you'll live long enough to get either one of those. He says, but it's easy to win championships when you play. And so I said, well, think about it this way. When I was a rookie, there were 80 jobs in professional basketball. So a lot of good players didn't make that. Mm -hmm. I said, if there were only 12 teams, you couldn't have won that championship. He said, why? I said, because, Pax, he hit his open shot. Won the game. Well, if there were 12 teams in the league, he couldn't have made that shot. He said, why not? I said, because he'd been up in the stands. <laughs> <laughs> and there's not a knock on him. That's to talk about the quality of the NBA. I, I, you know, I picked him as the number one center of all time as far as concerned because he was a complete, complete basketball player. Over you? Well, you know, yeah. I, I'm gonna pick him over over me right really? now. Yeah, because because he he also helped his team to win uh, a lot more than maybe I could have helped my team to win. 
sometimes the mere power of you makes you more individualistic. I have said this before, Wilt Chamberlain and the Boston Celtics might not have been the same. Because I would have taken away from Bob Cousy, from Tom Heinsohn, because I was a scorer too. And then all of a sudden now they had to pass the ball to me, and they would take something away, away from them. So, you know, sometimes it, uh, less is better. It was easy to win a championship when you played because there was like 10 teams in the league. And Bill Russell said, it's not the case. You see, John Paxson, who made your shot against Phoenix to win that series, he wouldn't have even been in the league when I played. Because when you only have eight teams, that literally means the spots are more limited in the league. That means that each team has two or three stars on each team, as opposed to a spread out league like we have today, or even in the 90s, where there's one or two stars or one star on some teams, and the rest of the team is just kind of garbage. We talk about how much more talent there is in the NBA now, right? Well, there was more spots, so of course there's more talent. But if you actually condense it, imagine if you took... Imagine if we just removed 20 teams from the NBA today and put all the best players on eight teams. Do you know how stacked those teams would be? Think for a second. Have you ever thought of it the other way? You see, Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell played each other in their careers. I'm not mistaken. I, I, I may not be. I don't think I'm mistaken. 17% of their entire career games. So think about that. LeBron and Kevin Durant would have had to play 17% of their career games against one another as opposed to feeding off those weak teams you know players that don't teams that don't have a player to combat their dominance can you believe that it doesn't make it much easier yes it gives you a higher probability to win but that's not why bill russell won 11 rings that's not why will chamberlain averaged 50 points a game will chamberlain averaged 50 points a game yes he may have had the height advantage for sure but they actually Limited rules to stop Wilt from dominating, unlike other stars like a Michael Jordan where, you know, they liked his style and let the rules expand for more guards to dominate. For example, they made the... Also, here are some things I used to think about Wilt. I used to think, too, that he only averaged 50 because it was a bunch of white dudes. He just dunked every time. He camped out in the paint. There was no three in the key. Wrong. There was no defensive three in the key, but there was an offensive three in the key. So not favorable to the offense. And the biggest, most mind-boggling thing I never knew about Wilt, I always knew how strong he was. I used to, I used to just think he just bullied people like, he, like Shaq did. Until I saw a clip of Wilt saying, As they call fouls, though, today, you know, Shaq gets away with what I would consider murder. So they, uh, they, uh, they let the him go. Yeah, I mean, I would think that when you dip your shoulder and you run over top of a guy and the foul's called on the guy laying on the floor, you know, you're getting away with something. So so uh, Shaq is allowed maybe to score some points that maybe he wouldn't get. Now watch the power of Shaquille O'Neal. Watch Matumbo. It's almost like he lifts him off the floor. Your feet leave the floor. It's pretty difficult to jump. And Shaq, Shaquille, look at him lift him up off the floor. He's at a 45-degree angle here now as he turns and powers through him on his way to the basket. Once again, this was the other night. Lakers trying to close out Chicago here, leading three games to two. Chamberlain working against four wins. things that you were taught just getting Wilt's path he doesn't like offensive fouls if you take the shoulder and you 
fake an offensive foul or take the charge, so to speak. Bucky Bucks, that's Al Sinder against Bellamy. No basket for Ricky Powell. It's an offensive foul. He moved into it. Bellamy really held his ground, and they said jumping into the lap of Walt Bellamy was the big guy who's listed. Now the ball club that was in the cellar last year. And right ahead of him, this Detroit club. That's Bellamy charging right into the big guy. It's a fine defensive play by Lou Alcindor. In the struggle for the ball between McMillan and Perry. And an offensive foul is called on Jabbar. So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar picks up the offensive foul. Looks like he's always in the play. You think you have him beat, and he's able to recover. Uh-oh, that's very close to an offensive foul. Basically backing people down with force, you know, swinging your elbows, throwing bows. I used to think that's what Wilt did to his 6'9 competition. By the way, that's just a league average. Not every center was actually 6'9. And the best center, Bill Russell, was. But Wilt, the offensive rules, the, the strictness of calling offensive fouls. You see, back in the day, you see that people weren't as... You don't see as much physicality on camera, even though it was physical, but... You don't see people backing each other down back-to-back. Back. You see a lot of butt-to-back. You see Oscar Robertson using his butt to create separation. Not much force, not turning the elbow. No, like, the way Shaq does it, you know, back-to-back back contact, shoulder into contact, elbow into someone. Wilt couldn't do it. They were all offensive fouls. And among watching, and upon watching the games, you'll notice the offensive rules were so strict any sort of leading into someone, pump fake and lean in like they do now, or charging into people, all offensive fouls. The game was a finesse game, a speed game, not a strength game, not a power game. It was, Naismith initially didn't want it to be super physical. It was very physical when they used to play in like cages back when before the NBA, but then he wanted the game to not be as physical. Naismith, the creator of basketball. So they didn't let the offense just barrel into people. So that's why when I see... By the way, so going back to the what would LeBron or what would this guy do in that era, if you put him in a time machine and put him in that era, they would be dribbling the ball incorrectly every single possession. They would just get carries every time. So this time machine argument of what would they do in this era is stupid because every single star adapts their skill set to the time. That's why I think Wilt Chamberlain would have a much easier time adapting to any era as opposed to a James Harden. Because if you put him in the 80s and he can't dribble the way he does now, it completely changes every single aspect of his game. So that is why the older players say they can dominate more. But I still haven't explained anything about the rules except for the offensive fouls thing. So when I see a guy like LeBron or Giannis just charge into people or Shaq, they would be worse in the 60s and 70s, guys. I'm telling you right now because they weren't allowed to do this. Wilt fin had an amazing finesse flip shot and an amazing turnaround bank shot. He used finesse to score so many points. But why 50 points? Because the biggest indicator as to how many points you score in a particular era is pace. And in the 60s, they had the highest pace of them all. Another thing about dunking is I was listening to Bobby Dandridge and also from the Milwaukee Bucks that won a championship with Kareem and Oscar talk and he said back in the day you didn't try to dunk on big men in the paint because there was a rule that if you tried that you'd get knocked to the floor and then he said he tried it and hence he got knocked to the floor there's a video of Nate Thurm I'm not saying that and now once again that's not saying that every time you went in the paint you got knocked to the floor but if you tried to dunk on someone in the 60s it would not end pretty I've seen Nate Thurman dunk on Bill Russell and as a result he was knocked to the floor so the 60s, guys, is a great era. It's not because he, 
the reason he averaged 50 points has nothing to do with the competition. There was great competition. And if you don't believe me as to who else besides Wilton Bill, that's all you're saying. Let's do it. Because now that I know it, I can say it. Do you guys? What about Dave Bing? What about Sweet Lou Hudson? What about uh, Dave DeBusher? What about Willis Reed? What about Richie Guerin? What about Sam Jones? What about John Havlicek? What about Bob Cousy? What about Nate Thurman? What about Rick Barry? What about Elgin Baylor? What about Jerry West? What about Oscar Robertson? What about Jerry Lucas? I can go all day now, people, because why? Because I went and researched. Any other thing we forgot about the 60s? The average player, the plumbers, the averages, only eight teams. Just because, by the way, just because the NBA wasn't as popular doesn't mean it wasn't as good. We talk about the 70s, right? An era that, again, gets really disrespected. And I used to disrespect it. Because the three things associated with the 70s, especially the late 70s, not as much the early. If you watch the early 70s, like, it's such good basketball. You have those amazing Knicks teams. You have the Celtics with, you know, a different variation with Dave Cowens, John Havlicek, and JoJo White. You know, you have the Warriors. You have the Washington Bullets with Earl the Pearl Monroe, Wes Unseld. It's Elvin Hayes. You know, so many good teams. You can argue that there's more talent in the 70s than the 60s because there's more teams allowed. They start expanding the number of teams. And it's a great era. I think it's honestly a very solid era. But obviously, it's known for fights, which once again has nothing to do with the games being worse. Drugs, which, you know, people may have had drug problems. I don't know how much that has to do with players being individually worse. And then, of course, racism, which is the biggest thing. And obviously, the popularity of the sport. You know, it really took off with Magic and Larry. But that doesn't mean that basketball was that much worse in the 70s. Now, I know people say that the end of the 70s was a bad period. But from what I've seen... I, where I'm, by the way, if you're wondering where I'm at in my little timeline, 1975. So from what I've seen, the 70s is great basketball. So I, I took off my mental block. You know, I never even considered Clyde Frazier a top 10 point guard of all time. He's like, oh, it's the 70s. And I never realized my own hypocrisy. I used to consider Oscar Robertson. You know, Oscar Robertson comes up in the best point guard discussions all the time. But you know another guy who played, who got drafted the exact same year and retired the exact same year and everybody considered as good, if not particularly, arguably better in his time Jerry West why don't we talk about him as one of the greatest point guards of all time because he is a point guard he played point guard the majority of his career he was just one of the first scoring point guards and you know the more I watch Jerry West he's literally and you know Gen Z Cucks might think I'm going crazy here he's literally like a 60s version of Curry if you look at the stats, they're so similar but Jerry's more athletic he's a better defender he can rebound the game doesn't cater as much to his strengths, but that dude, he is the real deal. We need to start talking, and obviously the 1-9 finals record and all that hurts him, but he won the same amount of ships as Oscar. And he lost to Bill Russell Celtics, who everyone lost to in the 60s. So Jerry West and Oscar Robertson are really not that far apart. Honestly, if you want to talk to me, I honestly would take Jerry by a little bit, but the reason my reasoning is going to wait for another episode. But my point is we don't even see our own biases. We always hear about Oscar Robertson because of the triple-double. We don't hear about Jerry West as one of the best point guards of all time when he should be. And I used to just omit him and Clyde Frazier and all these guys because they were pre-80s. It's wrong, guys. The 60s were great. The 70s were great. Just because it wasn't a three-point line doesn't mean anything. It's still basketball. There weren't even that many threes shot in the beginning of the 80s. So why, the question might be, why are people saying these things? Why do they want to tear down the other eras? Why are kids coming up with these lies and trying so hard to defend their era and even when they're presented evidence, they deny, 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 deny? Well, 
I'll tell you the main reason. The same comparison you hear every day. Jordan and LeBron. And I'll tell you why it's ruining the game. Why would someone try so hard to tear down another era? Unless one, either they didn't watch it, or two, are trying to defend what they like, which for older people, they've seen the differences. The older people that romanticize their era have seen every era. So the stuff that they say is usually valid. Not necessarily you have to agree with them, but it's usually valid. They just exaggerate a bit. Whereas the newer kids didn't grow up watching that era, so they say the things that I said earlier. But because they, why would they tear it down another era unless they were defending this one and or defending their guy? Because here's the thing. I've ne- I rarely seldom hear Laker and Celtics fans tear down previous eras. Because why? Because if you're a Laker or a Celtics fan, tearing down previous eras is like tearing down your own history. Why would you say, why would you degrade Bill Russell? Why would you speak down on magic? That's not being a true fan. But I've found, and this isn't that much of a generalization because it's literally been true in most occasions. But pay attention to it, guys. Almost every single person that says these things about the old era and props up the new are LeBron fans. Almost every time. And they think LeBron's the greatest ever. And they think that it's LeBron and Jordan. There's no other opinion. And that is because they listen to certain people in the media. Now, before we get to what the media says, I'm going to tell you, we talked about what the strengths are of today's game. Face-up footwork, taking people off the dribble, handles, shooting threes, shooting from 30 feet out. You know, big guys handling the ball, whatever. And we spoke about what the older players were good at. But let's talk about what the newer players aren't good at because it gets very overlooked. And as somebody who's played basketball, I can tell you, you know, played basketball my whole life, studied the game, coached the game, whatever. So one of the biggest weaknesses in today's game is the big man. It's been happening for a while since I started watching basketball 15 years ago. The big man has been in a decline. But the last couple of years, we've basically eliminated big men in post-game and turned into the pick-and-roll heavy spacing NBA. But what the pick-and-roll often does, as we talked about earlier, is force mismatches with big guys being guarded by little guys. And this used to happen a lot for me, my realization of this, when Blake Griffin was on the Clippers. And every time it happened, I would yell at my TV for Blake to go post up <coughs> a 6'7 or smaller wing for an easy basket. And he wouldn't do it, and the possession was wasted, basically. And that would happen like two to three times a game. And every single time he would do it, he would score. Two games that are prime examples of Blake Griffin being aggressive and taking advantage of every mismatch was his return to LA against us and when Chris Paul returned to LA as a member of the Rockets. He was dominant. Every time, and listen, this is not just Blake Griffin. All the big guys, when they try and take the little guy on a switch, the skilled ones, like the Blakes, the Carl Anthony Towns, they score. It's like, why are they overcomplicating their game? And you hear this from the big guys on TNT all the time when they're talking about Kristaps Porzingis. And I've been watching Porzingis, and I used to like him, but now I don't like him because he just literally shoots from 30 feet. He does nothing. And just shooting over someone... Like, yes, that's using your size, but that's the further, the taller you are, the further you go away from the basket, you're killing your advantage. Not everyone is Kevin Durant with that kind of jump shot. What's brought up, but the, the key is that there is a balance between inside and outside play. And what For it does, a 7 3 guy. Yeah, the fact that it, the, the 7 for 3, particularly, he's going to be taking better shots because of his size. So even when he's eight feet into the, to the basket, he doesn't have the same. Uh, defensive tenacity around him that someone who was six feet. 
Ball six when, eight would have. So I hate when people say we criticize them. I don't care what nobody say. We know what we're talking about. The closer you are to the basket, the higher your percentage is. Chuck said it. Ain't no big guy shooting 45, 50%. When you're a big guy used to shoot jumpers, you're taking your stuff out the game. When you got a guy small on you, you're supposed to post. But they're not. But they're not. They're oh, not. God, they, I, they're not they're, but they don't have a 24 and 5 record. So it's not like they're, they have any, like, this huge. What, what number are they well, in, in the they're West? 20, they're 20 and 10. 20 now. and 10, but and they're, they're in the West. All about and, they've got the, and they've got the number one offensive rating. Yeah, but in the, but in just, the you don't even have home court advantage in the West. So it's not like, well, and, you know what I mean? So I'm not saying and, 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 it's not and, something with no, like, say this. You don't have home court advantage. Uh, and I understand, uh, uh, first of all, Rick, Rick is wrong. He's not a historically great player. He's got great potential, but he's not no historically great player. Let's get that out the way. We all like Porzingis, but to say he's a historically great player, uh, he's just wrong. We like uh, Porzingis. But especially... I don't understand. Think about this. When Doncic goes out the game, I can understand him wanting him on the perimeter when Doncic is out there. But when Doncic goes out the game, why wouldn't you run some post-ups for him? And Rick says that's extinct. Anybody who does not want Joel Embiid playing on the post more than shooting threes don't know anything. I don't care what if he won a championship or not. And I don't know when you're a real – Kevin Durant's also not a real big man. He's a wing. If you're a real big man, you should have big man skills. To me, it's like if I'm a in this era, if I'm a point guard and I can't shoot a three, you know, like a Ben Simmons or something like that. People say, oh, how can you be a point guard and not shoot threes? How can you be a big man, not know how to use your size, not have a jump hook? I mean, I, mean, I don't see anyone with jump hooks anymore. No post game. They, their footwork is terrible. You know, Pascal Siakam was posting up and I thought he was decent. He got exposed. His choppy footwork, it's not taught anymore. The fundamentals are not taught. No jump hooks with both hands. You know, no turnarounds over both shoulders. Going back to post game, you know, back in the day, post game was essential. It wasn't optional. That was the way the game was played. You had to be able to post up because there's no the hand checking and non-spacing. Like, think about for the guard. Hand check, no spacing, and the game is run through big men and the dribbling rules. How does that make it easy for guards to penetrate and do their thing? It's a feed the big. Remember what Cousin Showtime said in the last episode? Little guys shoot jumpers. Until he said Iverson came around and kind of changed that. You know, that's obviously not saying that, you know, little guys used to never drive into the paint. But it's saying that that wasn't the style. So, a big man, when I see it, you know, as a little guy that played basketball myself. When I see a big man, that's unless they're like some insane ball handler for a big man, like a real player, like a professional, whatever. If I see a big man dribble the ball in front of me. I love it because you're going. You're playing my game now. You got us at a lower center of gravity. So like when Chris Steps Porzingis is trying to dribble past Fred Van Vliet, that's cookies. That's a steal. Like you're not. You're killing your advantage. Keep the ball up high. Get in the post where you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to go forward that much. You're already in a good spot. And once again, post game is a complete lost art. And there's a reason why I think. And we're gonna talk about him a little later. And um, Kobe Bryant who I consider the most skilled player ever because he's got amazing face-up game. He doesn't have the fanciest handle, but once again, he has an effective handle. You know, a lot of times we get obsessed with, oh my God, no one's hitting that tween, 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 cross like hard and step back. Fancier does not always equal better. And my friend Will's a big proponent of this motto. These guys be doing too much. It's all about the highlight play, getting on ball is life. You know, everybody wants to wow the crowd. 
the the style that Kawhi plays, the mid-range game, the mid-range efficiency, cash, the effectiveness, doesn't sell anymore. And it's all about selling. It's all about marketing. The more these fancy moves happen, the more people think it's better basketball. When in actuality, the best, most effective basketball is not using 200 dribbles to score because that's exerting more energy. And you see it happens to Harden all the time. And Draymond Green came on inside the NBA and said it himself. We know James gets tired. Kobe, Kawhi, these guys, the most effective way, Jordan, no dribbles. Catch the ball in the right spot, mid-post, and score. And another thing I've realized about these big men in today's era, even the ones that try to post up, they all post up way too far from the basket. They don't actually get on the block. They don't fight for position. And somebody I noticed that has great advanced post game for this era was Carmelo in the bubble. You see how people would try to front him, and he would always have counters. He would open up his body. He would, you know... Uh, start cutting, cutting to the basket if someone started fronting him. Just he had counters to everything, and you know why? Because Melo was taught that. So if you, to me, the best offensive players or scorers are the ones that have post game and face up. So James Harden could never be a better scorer than a guy like Dur- uh, Durant. Has the you know turn around one legged Dirk Nowitzki style shoot over people um, post game. But it's not like Kobe. The skill, the turnarounds over both shoulders. Do you know how hard it is to do? Go out on a basketball court and try to do turnarounds over both shoulders. I'm telling you right now, I can go out and take a video of me shooting a 30-footer right now under a screen and hit it no problem. I, to, to hit turnarounds over both shoulders, that takes hours and hours of, and days of work. That's hard. You know, Reggie Miller was saying in commentary this playoffs, we have the best center in the league, Nikola Jokic. He said, man, if he can, he's pretty good at turning over that left shoulder, but if he could turn over that right shoulder, and he doesn't, he doesn't have that yet, not consistently. And that's the thing about these kids is like, they'll say like, oh, what do you mean they have no post game? He'll put up, then you'll send me a clip of somebody with post, making a post move. That's not consistent. We all watch basketball. And, you know, so that's one thing. One of the people that really changed the game and doesn't get enough credit for it is Dirk Nowitzki because he was one of the first or real star seven-footer shooting threes. You know, Jack Sigma, Patrick Ewing, these guys could shoot, but they weren't shooting threes like Dirk Nowitzki. But you know what people don't understand? is not everyone thinks, oh, a big man that can shoot? It's so incredible. It's only incredible when you can you master the inside game and then you can take people out so then you're unpredictable. If you only have the outside, it doesn't make sense. So people wonder why the big man has declined. It's not just the rules. It's because these guys don't do it. They're not good. They're not that good compared to the old big man. I watch Patrick Ewing get turnarounds over both shoulders. I'm in awe. Like, people get wowed with deep threes nowadays. I don't really, now that that's the norm, I get wowed with seeing anyone just do a jump hook, a post move, a turnaround. I'm shocked. It's impressive to me. Because it's not, it just doesn't happen anymore. So when I see these guys getting contested mid-ranges with dudes draped all over them, I'm seeing Willis Reed hit post moves. I'm like, these dudes are incredible. They would dominate today. Because imagine if you switched anyone onto them. And another thing, the poor IQs. I've never seen a generation with worse basketball IQs than this. Take a guy like Reggie Jackson, for example, a perfect example of a modern player. Same with Paul George. They have a little bit of everything. They can shoot. They have good mid-ranges. They're decent finishers. They have decent handles. Paul George, a really solid handle for his size. But they make poor decisions. Like, you know, one of the things that's ruined the game, in my opinion, everybody likes to go three is worth more than two. Listen, I'm all for 18 footers, 20 footers, the long twos, your foot on the line, make making those threes. That's that's fine. But this this whole mid range is a bad shot narrative 
is awful for basketball because you see guys in pick and rolls passing up mid-range shots for these ridiculous threes and like fast breaks are being destroyed now because people are just standing for the transition three they're not cutting to the basket which makes the defense's job easier because you don't have to go as much room you can just get to the three-point line easier and it kills fast breaks it's horrible it's not good basketball guys it's not good basketball the best thing about basketball is the the best basketball is ability to adapt and ability to score from all over the court. So when I see guys like Jason Tatum, and I'm a huge fan, have, you know, kind of wishy-washy mid-range game and not being able to finish around the basket that great. I see a guy like Luka Doncic, who's in my opinion an overrated shooter because when we talk about shooting, everyone in this era only talks about three-point shooting when in all actuality, shooting is being able to shoot from everywhere on the court. If you're a guy like Danny Green who's making threes, but when you get within the three-point line, you look awkward shooting the ball, which he very much did in this playoffs. And you got a guy like Luka Doncic who's hitting step-back game-winning threes, but he can't make a damn free throw, you question things. Luka Doncic shoots like 37% from like 16 feet out. Like... You know, and people, the analytics defenders will say, people don't understand analytics. They think that the mid-range is a bad shot. It's only that if you're shooting the same percentage from the mid-range as you are from three, you might as well shoot more threes. That that shows my point. If you're closer to the basket, that should be a higher percentage of you scoring. But because people don't practice mid-ranges, threes are the same as twos. And I and when you got a guy like Paul George who I watched in these playoffs and Anthony Davis. And half the time that they wouldn't get going is because they would settle for jumpers and just think, oh, it's going to go in eventually. Why don't you go to the basket first and then it'll open up the outside game? These players lack common sense. They make horrible decisions. I used to never say, you know, when I'm watching the 80s, guys, and this is more than even the 2000s. 2000s still had some dumb players too. But in the 80s, I'm almost never saying, oh, bad shot. Oh, what is he doing? They're so smart. They're so calculated. They just understand the game. For more or less of a better better words, they just get it. They get what it takes to make players better. They don't hog the ball. They don't take stupid, ill-advised shots. They work for the best possession. You know, I was taught that every possession counted in the playoffs. And watching this 2020 bubble GSL, I was seeing shots in the finals. Reckless abandonment. Just running up the court and shooting a three. Like... Isn't there any, you know, my biggest evaluation of a basketball player is your decision-making. When is it time to do this? When is it time to not do this? When is it time to, when it, when you see teams missing threes constantly, and that's another thing, guys. Watch teams. Why do they go cold most of the time? It's because they're settling for too many threes. In today's era, if you move the ball, and once again, I see a lot of no-pass possessions, and when you move the ball, you're almost guaranteed a good shot in this era, no matter what star players or what, what lineup you have out there. Even five role players, if you get a pick and roll, you have the right personnel, move the ball, make the defense work, you're going to get a good shot in this era because it's so hard to defend. So I think that the three-point analytic movement is ruining the game. Prime example, why did Mike D'Antoni and them, who went all out to try to, to try to do it, lose? People always say, well, the Warriors win a championship. Yes, you know why? Because they defend. They're the ultimate killers of the pick and roll defensively because they can switch everything. And you know one thing about the Warriors? They take good threes. They don't just chuck threes. They take good threes. And they have the greatest, some of the greatest shooters to ever play the game of basketball. So there's a difference. And the main thing about the Warriors is they have variety. Stephen Curry doesn't just shoot threes. He can shoot from anywhere on the court. The best indicator of, as I said this before, the best indicator of a great shooter or how good a shooter is, is free throw percentage because it's the same shot in every era. Field goal percentage and three-point percentage do not indicate shit because you don't account for what shots they're taking. Devin Booker shooting however what from three, that he's not shooting the same shots as, let's say, a KCP. Those are contested off-the-dribble shots that he's taking. So 
Kobe Bryant, let's 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 do a little exercise. The only person I have found that has disproved my free throw thing was Brad Wanamaker, who shoots like 90% of the line, and for the rest of the court, he's like an average shooter. But Kobe Bryant was around 85%. Michael Jordan around the same. LeBron, mid-70s. Who's a better shooter? You tell me. Just because somebody shoots from farther distance like LeBron does pulling up from the logo does not make someone a better shooter. So, yes. Westbrook, what's his free throw percentage? Huh. Rondo, huh. Shaq, huh. What about Kareem, though? A little more touch, huh? Proves my point. J.J. Redick, Kyle Corey, these are great shooters. They're three-point specialists, but they can shoot from everywhere. Anyway, so what we got? Poor finishing, too many threes, the lack of the mid-range game, low basketball IQs. But before we get into one of the, the main thing, the one of the things, oh, also, poor passing. Guys, I don't think people understand how easy it is to pass. I had a friend of mine have the audacity to tell me that these players are better passers than in the past. Guys, you know, once again, these problems that you see in the NBA can all be caught at the youth level. So I grew up playing basketball my whole life, right? And um, to give you my profile, I'm somewhat of a modern player myself in a way. Uh, I like, I'm not a score first guy. I'm more of a traditional point guard, but handles, shooting, you know, I don't have post game. I'm not the best finisher on the basket. And I've really stopped taking mid ranges over the last couple of years, which has been horrible for my game. I've gotten better at threes, obviously. But, you know, that's my personal profile. Quick guard. That can, you know, take people off the dribble when you're not hand-checking me. And we're going to get into that in a second. But the passing ability of people in the youth. Because I went to training by AAU coaches. And a lot of this is from the AAU, you know, who's training our players. And we have a quote from Kobe Bryant here. Kobe, you've been pretty critical of the AAU system and the way American players are brought up. Not pretty critical. I'm extremely critical. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it doesn't teach our players how to play the right way. You know, how to think the game, how to play in combinations of threes. And I think everything is a, you know, it's a reward system. I think uh, you know, the coaches who are you know, teaching the game are getting rewarded one fashion or another. And um, it's just a showcase. Do you I feel think like it's absolutely horrible for the game. The young guys that are coming up, do you feel like the game is kind of stiff, whereas when you're a guys were more skilled? Yeah, but I think that was just by luck in the generation that I grew up in. You know what I mean? Because like my generation is when the AU basketball really started becoming shit. You know, and I, I got lucky because I grew up in Europe. Right. And, you know, everything there was still fundamental. So I learned all the basics. And I think we're doing a tremendous disservice to our young basketball players right now. Yeah. That's something that definitely needs to be fixed. And it's going to be one of the things I definitely focus on. In terms of uh, uh, the development of players, I feel like that has completely gone backwards. And it starts at a very, very, uh, at the youth level and growing up through AAU and so forth and so on. We're not teaching our kids the fundamentals of the game. We're not teaching them how to think the game. And uh, that's a bigger issue. All the other things that surround the game will come and go. Uh, but the game itself is the most... Kobe, is that really a bigger issue or, or are you as an outlier? Like, you had a very well-rounded game, but yeah. not everyone did. There were a lot of bums compared to you then, just as there are now compared to the best players. Are you the old-timer now looking back and going, in my day, everyone knew the game. That was just you. Or do you really think it's gone backwards in that way? No, it has. I mean, it, you know, our development in USA basketball, you can, you can just look at that on the surface and the difficulty and the challenges that we face in playing international competitions. So when I grew up and growing up overseas in Italy, I was very fortunate because I caught the teaching time in Europe. So, you know, the Red Holtzmans, the Tex Winners, and all these great coaches at the time went over to Europe to teach coaches, have coaching 
coaching clinics of how to train players. So when I was growing up, I caught the fundamentals of that game, right? Pau Gasol, Manu Ginobili, you know, same thing. And so you look at our, the difficulty that we have had in international competition is because these players learn how to play the game and think the game at all levels. Pau Gasol, just as comfortable handling the ball as he is in the post. Marc Gasol, right? You look at San Antonio Spurs and the way that they move the ball. Um, and so we have to do a better job you, developing you, our players. You, Kevin Garnett said, you know, if I'm being honest with you, these guys aren't learning shit. Charles Barkley said, you got a lot of guys in the NBA that are talented, but they don't know how to play basketball. And then Draymond Green and LeBron James even said, know that role. I'll tell you one step further. There's a lot of players in the NBA that don't know how to play basketball. They don't, and they in the NBA do not know but, how to but, play basketball. But, but they can play basketball. I yes. know how to play they basketball. Don't know I can't. How. And I think Draymond Green's one of the better thinkers in today's game. Because he understands that it doesn't, it's not about the statistics, it's about winning plays. And it, it proves my point. The AAU is teaching fools to dribble and have better ways to score. You know, handles. When I was in, a, when I was in the uh, AAU, um, coached by AAU coaches, I mostly got better at hitting the ball, shooting the ball, you know, moves, ways so I can score, which is exactly what everyone's working on. It's not about playing in a team game. It's not about the thinking of the game. I've learned more from watching basketball than coaches in terms of thinking the game, except for a few coaches that have told me some great nuggets of information. For example, know your personnel, you know, know who you're giving the ball to. That's another thing. People act like just, you know, the Gen Z fan thinks LeBron James making the, just finding an open man every time is the right play. Sometimes you got to know who you're passing to and what's going to happen if they get the ball, knowing your personnel. And so poor passing, guys, you know what I've noticed throughout my life that no one, none of these kids are actually learning how to pass anymore. It's all about the scoring. It's all about, oh, I'm going to cross someone over. I'll, and and I, I sound arrogant when I say this, but in every single court I've ever been in, no matter what level of basketball they're playing, I've always been one of the best passers on the court. because I just love Some of it's just kind of natural, like you know, passing mechanics, how much weight you put on your passes, the angle in which you're passing, what angles to pass and what not to pass. It's all a skill, you know? And, you know, you got a guy like Lou Williams averaging six assists today. Has he improved his passing? No question. But six assists for a guy like Lou Williams who's not known to score, you know why? It's because he's such a good scorer that the pick-and-roll game opened it up for him to make easy reads in pick-and-roll. Now, you might argue, I mean, you're saying those are easy reads. I'm saying easy reads compared to what players used to make. So if you put John Stockton in this NBA, do you know how many assists he would average? Do you know what magic, like, once again, stats are inflated today. It's so easy to get assists. It's so easy to get points. And it's so easy to get rebounds because everyone's spread out. So people value stats way too much today. Way too much because you don't understand. Like, LeBron James may average 10 rebounds or whatever. How many of those rebounds are you actually going, good rebound, LeBron? How? Why are guards averaging so many rebounds these, these days? Because there's five out, nobody's even boxing out. The ball just comes to people nowadays. Now, I'm not penalizing players, but it's not the same as when Charles Barkley's literally boxing out, fighting. I don't even see people boxing out anymore, guys. Like, look for this. They don't actually get real rebounds anymore. The assists are very generous, too. But it's easier to score than it's ever been, and part of that is because of the poorest defensive effort. You know, no one takes pride in defense anymore. Go back even seven years. Part of it is because of all the things I've said. It's so hard to play defense in today's era with the skill of certain players in the pick and roll. But I'm going to explain why that has happened. But because of what has happened, it has encouraged players to not try anymore on defense. It's very pick and choose now. Like, these players... 
There's no pride in defense. There's players taking possessions off every five seconds because they're like, oh, it's just, you know, it's so hard to stop these guys. No. I used, to, I used to defend these players. Go to a college basketball game and go watch the effort that they put in. Defense is like 90% effort. And these players, because of how much money they're getting paid now, like, for example, Paul George is making $30 million a year. Kobe Bryant, in his highest paid contract, never made that much. And that should tell you a lot of what's going on right now. The defensive effort is a joke. And you can tell by the scores. Anyway, another thing we also have. Any player that's like not try to make friends on the court or, you know, loyal to an organization, everyone's like, that dude's different. You know, the phrase different is thrown around more than Trump used the word tremendous in his campaigns. Different? That's what every player used to be. Not trying to team up with your friends and start this culture. You know, everybody wants the easy way out now. Like all these fans, right? Every single time a player fails in a small market, where's he going? Where's he going? Why don't you, you know, it's not impossible to win in a small market. You know, like Draymond Green said, he's got to, Devin Booker's got to get out of Phoenix. I never said the, the Phoenix Suns have never been a terrible organization until, you know, they had Ryan McDonough as the general manager a couple years ago. You know, in the 70s, they had Connie Hawkins. In the 80s, they had Walter Davis. You know, they made the finals in the 70s. They were competitive in the 80s. They made the finals in the 90s. And they were great in the 2000s with Nash, Stoudemire, and, and Sean Marion. The Phoenix Suns have never been this trash. But everyone's trying to, and the media's doing it with, they don't give the Bucks that many nationally televised games. So they want to get Giannis to come to LA and stuff. And I live in LA. I'm sitting in Los Angeles right now, and I'm telling you, this is bad for the game. Everyone needs to go to a big market now. Everyone wants to go to LA, New York. Nobody wants the hard way out. Nobody wants to fight anymore for rings. They all want to just join up with their friends. And you know where that comes from? AAU, where all these great, talented kids team up with one another. Kobe Bryant played in AAU, and he says it's not good. Okay? And I know the people that are in AAU right now are not going to like what I'm saying, but it's literally the facts. It's literally the facts. I was coached by AAU coaches, the same coach, and I love my coach. I have great coaches. They made me better, but I'm just saying I wasn't trying to go league, so it's different. Anyway, so yeah, that is all the things that players are bad at, but why has, but I'm not trying to, when I said all that stuff, that rant just now, it may make it seem like I'm trying to tell you that these players are worse today. That's not the case either. That's all up for interpretation. Now, where is everybody getting these opinions? Why did I even make this podcast? Where did these kids get these opinions of the physicalities of myth, the players, the average player wasn't as good, the plumbers, all this? I'm afraid it's the same as we talked about in the Who's the Goat podcast. The media propaganda that's twisted everyone's mind and made people believe a certain way. And they only think, and this is all the Gen Z fans, they only think this way. And the sad part is they've even gone to some adults that have changed the way they've thought over time because of it. Thank you for listening to part two. I really hope you enjoyed. Um, make sure to leave a comment. Make sure to subscribe. Make sure to like the video. And make sure to leave a review if you're listening on the podcast version. I know I said in my last ending of it that I was going to sh- do zone defense uh, and the media in this episode. But I figured because I didn't want to make it too long, the last episode will be all media examples basically. And zone defense and all the rules. I will really break it down. So for now, I hope you enjoyed. Tell me what you think of my comments. Do you agree? Do you disagree? But just make sure to subscribe and know your boy's not pushing any agendas. This is all that I've noticed. Not every single thing I said was facts. Some of it's just observation and opinion. Make sure to subscribe. Peace.